Father, your word is replete with all kinds of different ways of describing your praise. What we should do, we should adore you, we should worship you, we should exalt you, extol you, exalt in you, bow down before you, lift our hands up to you. We could go on and on and on. It's fitting, Lord, that there are different ways of describing your praise because your greatness is manifold. It's beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our understanding. It's more than we could number even, for many of us, what we know. Your word is a big book. It's over many millennia. And we thank you for your great plan, your great promises, your faithfulness, your patience. We thank you, especially in this month of Advent, for the fulfillment of those promises which come together in Jesus. God in the flesh, tempted and yet righteous, dying for our sins and raised for our justification. We thank you for the living one, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our hope, our joy, our peace. We pray that we would know more of him, more of your ways this morning through your word. We pray you'd glorify yourself to speak afresh through your word. We pray as Christians we would find even more comfort, more peace, more joy, that you'd give us more faith, give us repentance where that's needed. You'd give us comfort, or that you would give us nothing less than yourself, your glory, your nearness, your presence. We pray for non-Christians here. We're glad that they're here with us this morning. We, Lord, pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would teach, you would show, you would open eyes, you would open ears to hear, hearts to receive. We pray that some today would come to know Jesus savingly. We pray that they would go through this Christmas season, perhaps for the first time, forgiven, rescued, knowing exactly what it is that we celebrate, why he came, why he died, why he was raised for us and what it means for us. So glorify yourself, Father, in the truth that we've sung, in the hearts represented here, the minds that sit before your word. Teach us again, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Christmas is just a little over two weeks away. It's a wonderful time of the year, time for celebration and family and showing love and, of course, worship. It's also a time of inevitable disappointment for some. Christmas is not easy for everyone. For some who just recently lost a spouse or a parent or a child, and this is a first Christmas without that loved one, Christmas will not be an easier day for them. It will be a harder one. It's also having, also has potential disappointment for any of us. None of us go through the Christmas season feeling as though it was a perfect 10, cloud nine. You saw a lion and a lamb laying down together. Perfect peace on all sides. Joy off the charts. There's disappointment all over. No Christmas is a perfect Christmas, and even your best one. There's that thing called Christmas hangover. 
I remember as a, as a kid during Christmas time, you'd open presents Christmas morning, we'd have to go to a relative's house Christmas afternoon, and you'd come home, and first thing I would do when I came back home is look at my toys again under the tree. And I was always sure there was one missing. Like, this is it? it surely one got put away. Uh, it just didn't feel like it was all that, what it was cracked up to be or what I thought it was going to be. I remember as an adult, my first time going caroling. That's not like it is in the movies. In reality, it's awkward. It's awkward for those singing. It's awkward for those who have strangers singing on their porch. I remember one guy we were caroling to said, I don't know what to do. We're like, dude, just stand there, just smile. But yeah, I recognize too, this is weird. We love you. Jesus loves you. Disappointment, right? It's all over the place. And it's not just at Christmas time. It's everywhere. It's all year. It's every day in various ways to differing degrees. And it's as common as it is mystifying this thing of disappointment. Perhaps we have more disappointment than we should because we treat good things as ultimate things. Whether at Christmas or throughout any time of the year, whether we're talking about family or material things or jobs or even ourselves, we disappoint ourselves. We let ourselves down and others let us down. Expectations are let down. Perhaps it's because we treat good things as ultimate things. What is ultimate? God is. God is ultimate. Good things are an expression of his goodness and should point us to him. They're not made to be ultimate things, and it's good and loving that he lets things that are not ultimate feel as though they're not ultimate. God is ultimate, and therefore, his praise is the most important and best thing that we do. When his praise is true and real, not, not just religiosity, not just empty ritualism, but when his praise is true and real, it is the most satisfying thing there is. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's true of heaven's praise. That's true of the church's praise. It's true of our family worship and our private worship. It doesn't feel like it's true sometimes, but the Bible tells us that it's true. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, a pastor in the 1800s in London, said about praise. He said, Praising God is singularly beneficial. If we had more of it, we should be greatly blessed. We could, what could lift us so much above the trials of life? And what could help us to bear the burden and heat of the day so much as the songs of praise to the Most High? Praise helps to end murmuring. It nurses contentment. If our mouths were filled with praises of God, there'd be no room for grumbling. Praise would throw a halo of glory around the head of toil. The most common duties of life would be transfigured. Each duty would be raised into a hallowed worship, akin to that of heaven. It would make us more happy, more holy, and more heavenly if we would say continually, I will extol you, my God and King. 
Right in the middle of our Bibles, we have one big book called the Psalms, and it's a book of praises, songs, prayers. And for over a year now, we've been, on most Sunday mornings, in the book of Psalms. We've been calling this series, Pour Out Your Heart to Him. It's a fitting way of describing the Psalms because the Psalms are honest prayers and happy praise, and both are a pouring out of the heart to God. Today we come to Psalm 145, and it's our last message in this series. We'll take a couple of weeks more here before Christmas to anticipate the glory and greatness of Jesus' coming. And then mid-January, we'll start a new series in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. So let me encourage you, especially after December 25th, uh, read 1 Peter. You've got a couple of weeks there to prepare, to think through it. At least read through once, see some things, highlight some things. Email me some questions. By the way, what's that mean? I'm looking forward to this. I'd love to hear that up front. And I hope you'll be praying and anticipating our time in that great book of 1 Peter. But today, Psalm 145 It's one of the richest praise psalms in this whole book of praises, the book of Psalms. It's a psalm of David. Let's read it together. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. That's God's word for us this morning. It's... A remarkable psalm, isn't it? Before we get into the specifics of this remarkable psalm, let me show you some general ways in which it's remarkable. So I have several things to point out before you get to that bulletin sermon notes page, the outline that's listed there. How is Psalm 145 remarkable? Well, first, Psalm 145 is remarkable because 
In the original Hebrew, this is an acrostic alphabetic psalm. It's like Psalm 119. Our English Bibles designate different sections according to a Hebrew alphabet. So first eight verses are Aleph. That's because in the Hebrew, all of those verses begin with the letter Aleph in Hebrew. Then Beit, then Gimel, all the way through. Well, Psalm 145 does the same thing, but it does a new letter with every verse. And if Psalm 119 is about Scripture, which it is, Psalm 145 is about God's praise. And both of them are doing something by using this alphabet system. In our terms today, with our English letters, we could say something like, Psalm 119 is giving us the A to Z of God's word. Psalm 145 is giving us an A to Z of praise. In a book of praise, it's giving us the A to Z, the who, the why, the when, the how. Secondly, Psalm 145 is remarkable for its serious use of synonyms and repetition. I mean, it's just amazing. You might have noticed in the second half that there's a lot of alls, A-L-L. There are 14 of them in the second half of the psalm. All God's people, all God's ways, all God's care, all his works. You also have different words for praise in this First, in this uh, the psalm of 21 verses, you have 14 different words for praise. And some of them are repeated. So you have 18 different times that it's either doing praise or inviting praise. 18, that's a lot. And almost 40 different descriptive words or phrases for who God is. In 21 verses, it gives us 40 different ways to describe God, to tell us who he is and what he does and what he's like. Third, it's also remarkable for where it is in the Psalter, this book of Psalms. You might know that Psalm 146 to 150, the last five are heavy-duty praise psalms. Just flip a page over and look down in your Bibles and see just the language of praise. There's so much there in Psalm 146 to 150. Some other time we'll come back to the psalms for a short series in these five, uh, five psalms. They're called the Hallel Psalms sometimes, or the final Hallel. That's true, but Psalm 145 is a gateway to them, an important gateway to these final, consummating, fulfilling, lofty praise psalms at the end of this praise book. But Psalm 145 also summarizes a lot of what's come before. You see, because Psalm 145 is inviting, it's a lot like an instruction psalm. Like Psalm 1 was, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the ways of the ungodly, right? We meditate day and night, and we'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water. That's instruction. Psalm 145 is a bit like that. It's also praise, though. It's mingled together. It's summarizing a lot of what's come before in the 144 psalms preceding it. It even fulfills, brings some resolution to some of the darker or heavier sides to the psalms in what's come before. You remember there are psalms that complain to God. There are psalms that are written in the midst of horrible suffering. There there are psalms that that have enemies on every side. And here in Psalm 145, there's none of it. No enemies. 
No downcast spirit like Psalm 42. No doubt. No wondering whether he's there, whether God hears our prayers. It's bigger. It's bigger than what seems like reality. It's a crescendo of praise toward the end of the book of Psalms. It's remarkable for its fervency. The language here is a high watermark of passionate praise in the Bible. It's almost too much, like I said. It's like the guitar amp is turned up to 11. Some of you know what that means. It's stacked language, isn't it? Like at verse 5, notice the superlatives and the superfluous description meditating on the glorious splendor of your majesty i mean glorious splendor of majesty just try drawing one of those draw majesty what's that like i mean just write a paper on majesty just do a word study on majesty in the bible and then talk about the splendor of his majesty what's that i don't know but it's better than majesty. It's the splendor of his majesty. And that's not enough. David says the glorious splendor of your majesty. It's too much. It's lofty. It's great. It's fervent. It's passionate. And it's also remarkable because it's a multi-layered plan for the propagation of God's praise. So some psalms we've seen have been personal, private. Some psalms have been corporate for God's people, the church of the Old Testament. Some psalms have been familial or parental. It's a family. It's a kitchen table, kids and parents. Some psalms have been global, right? The nations, the coastlands, the islands, the the peoples. Well, Psalm 145 is all of that. Let me show you what I mean. Now we'll dig into some specifics. You can follow along with that sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin. You see there, there are three sections to this psalm. The first being God's praise is to be propagated internally or personally. Verses 1 through 3, David's doing this. It begins in first person, I will. He says in the middle there, middle of, uh, into verse 2, he says, I will extol, verse 1, verse 2, I will bless you. And praise your name. It's so personal here, right? Some psalms begin with calling on God's people. Some call on they or you. It's a plural you, like you all. And this one will get corporate, but not at first. David begins with himself. I think there's a lesson in that. Praise must begin with ourselves. As far as we're all concerned, praise must begin with me. It must start with me. And David resolves by saying, I will. Isn't that a resolve? Not I have, not I am, or I want to, but there's a resolve. I will. I will praise him. I will will extol him. In verse 5, he says, I will meditate. In verse 21, he says, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. There's resolve in all of that. I wonder how much we'd all be helped if... We approached corporate worship with resolve. We came, perhaps in the car on the way here, perhaps at home before we leave, to say, today we will do some things. When someone prays, we will pray. 
not just close our eyes. When truth is sung, we won't just sing, but it will be to God. When it's not directly to him, but about him, we will be conscious about those around us and and sing to one another thoughtfully and carefully, consciously. That, That needs resolve, right? That needs remembrance. It needs resolve in part because David says in verse 2, it's to be constant. Every day I will bless you, and it's to be forever. I will praise your name forever and ever. That's long, that's frequent, and that takes resolve. But not just resolve as if it sprung from David's own will and determination. It's also responsive, isn't it? I mean, David is saying, my God and King. So it's personal here. It's very personal and experiential. These things that he writes are based on not just theoretical uh, theorems about who God is, philosophical ideas that some have proposed or taught. When he says in verse 3, great is the Lord, when he says his greatness is unsearchable, That springs partly from what's been told in God's word and partly from his own experience. God is great. He is to be praised greatly. His greatness is beyond our comprehension. And if he's great, he's to be praised greatly. And that should be a little mind-blowing for us, shouldn't it? Great praise in light of a great God commensurate praise, we could say. We should be aiming for that. We should be on the lookout for that, where our praise is a proper reflection of the greatness of God. So when we sing of his happiness, we should be happy. And when we sing of his loftiness and might or his holiness, we should be humble. We should be in awe. Great thoughts of God should lead to great praise to God. Don't stop. Don't stop at just good thoughts. Don't stop at just lofty thoughts. Maybe you're sort of a theology dog. You know, you you could read a systematic theology straight through, but you wouldn't dare put your hand up in corporate worship. Maybe that's just personality. Maybe it's cultural, whatever. But it may be a reflection of your heart. Great thoughts of God should lead to great and lofty praise. Just like great praise to God should spring from great thoughts of God. Great praise shouldn't just be that some are better at stirring up their affections and their hearts and this one cries and that one loves to do this one. It springs from great thoughts. God is great and David can and elsewhere does. And here also, unpack what it means that God is great. How is he great? David could list 50, 100, 1,000 ways for us. He lists dozens here. And he's to be praised greatly. With great content. With great volume. Volume is one expression of great praise in the book of Psalms. Skill is another. The skill of the musicians the involvement, the breadth of people, the number of people. There's a, an expression of greatness that, that hundreds or a thousand or thousands would come and gather together in great praise to God. So what does this imply for you? 
God's praise is to be propagated internally. And if you're a Christian, hopefully it's in you already. You know this and you know, you know the difference between real praise and routine ritualism. If it will be real praise, we must go to the word. Isn't it true? The war for a real Sunday is fought all week. It's fought all week, isn't it? It's in communion with him. We go to the word to fight, to see, to sit, and to stare, to pray for his help. We see him for who he is. We commune with him throughout the day. And then we come to a new week on Sunday morning. And we come ready. And when we don't come ready, we come prayerful. And where we pray and nothing seems to happen, we still sing. We still come, we still pray, we still sing. Don't forget that part of the Psalms. That singing is, a lot of times in the Psalms, an expression of joy and worship, and sometimes it's a means for joy and worship, right? Sing with joy to the Lord, also sing for joy to the Lord. Shout for joy to the Lord. We sing because we're needy. We sing because it tends to do something to put melody to truth and to regurgitate it in our minds and hearts. That's what Spurgeon was talking about, about the benefit of praise. So God's praise is to be propagated internally, but secondly, God's praise is to be propagated generationally. Generationally. It's obvious. Verse 4 turns a corner When it says, one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. This is God's plan for the propagation of praise. It's not the only part of his plan. We don't believe it just is passed along through the multiplication of kids and teaching them. We believe in what we call missions. We believe in evangelism. We'll get to that. But a big part of God's plan is that this thing gets passed along through kids in the home, around the kitchen table, life on life. They have to be taught. They have to know. They have to know what he did. That's what Psalm 78 talks about. Psalm 78, look at that. Just flip back in your Bibles if you would. Psalm 78 is another teaching kids kind of psalm. We looked at it many weeks, maybe months ago. But let's see it again today in light of Psalm 145, which is so similar. And notice in verse 3, picking up in the middle of a sentence, it's talking about things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide these things from the children, but we'll tell it to the coming generation. What? The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Going on a little bit further, it says in verse 6, that the next generation might know them. That the children who are yet unborn, they would one day rise and tell them these things, these truths, to their children, so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. We have to tell our kids the stories. That's why it's good. That's why we have many versions of Bible story books. 
We have to tell them the stories and the details of the story. The God behind the story, not just exulting in David's great faith to take on a giant, but the God whose fame must be protected, that a bold young David with just a stone would risk his life for it. We must tell them the stories. We must tell them that he spoke. They must not forget their salvation is at stake. God's fame is at stake. The generation to come is at stake. All this is very much like Deuteronomy 6, a passage we hearken back to often because it's so, so much a watershed passage that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And you should have these words on your heart, mom and dad. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. Diligently teach them. Constantly teach them. When you walk on the way, when you sit down, when you rise up, put a note on your hand. Give yourself a big mark on the forehead. Not literally, but you need something obvious here, right? You need reminders. That's why you put things on your doorposts, on your gate. You're coming, you're going. Where you'll see scripture and truth, you need reminders that he's there, that he's spoken, that he's good, that he's glorious, that he's gracious. And we need to tell those things to our kids. That they would then speak of the might of his awesome deeds. But but how how do we get there? Don't forget verse 5. Back up to that. In Psalm 145, verse 5, David says he must meditate. I will meditate. He goes back to first person. That's interesting, isn't it? It seems like verse 5 would go better with that first section where David was very personal. It was about being, uh, about God's praise propagated internally. Yeah, but he didn't mess up by putting the first person stuff later on. He knows it has to keep going back to himself. Parents have to keep meditating on the Lord. And specifically, the glorious splendor of his majesty and his wondrous works. If there's any hope for the next generation to hear, parents don't just know and tell. They keep fighting to see and believe and rejoice themselves. That the next generation would themselves join in it. That's what verse 6 means. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Yes, as kids, as teens, as 20-somethings, as parents eventually, they'll join with us, they'll overlap. Praise God, generations overlap. Many families get to see kids join in, in in parenting their kids in godly ways. How neat. I I can't imagine how how great that would be. Like 3 John says, I have no greater joy than to see that my children walk in truth. I'm sure it's true also. Maybe more so. I have no greater joy than to see my grandchildren walk in truth. That they would speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And look at verse 7. And pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. Pour forth is just like it sounds. Gush. Water oozing, flowing out of a well. Kids that grow up. And don't just know the right answers. Don't just do the right things, but gush with praise to God. 
and they tell it to their kids. It's all over the Psalms. Psalm 79, from generation to generation we will recount your praise. Or Psalm 102, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that a people yet to be, yet to be created may praise the Lord, that they may declare. You see in Joel chapter 1, verse 3, three layers of generations right together put so succinctly. It just says, tell your children of it, let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation. This means that we're not just raising kids to be good kids, we're raising kids to be good parents. We're raising kids to be good grandparents. I know that's lofty. I mean, you thought you were just going to survive teen years. You were just looking to do that. Raising kids to be good parents? Might be thinking, hope that doesn't happen too soon. But that's what this is saying. It's telling us, you tell it to their children, your children, in such a way that they tell it to their children and it sticks. D.A. Carson often says that oftentimes one generation teaches and loves the truth, passes it on to the next generation. And if that second generation merely assumes the truth, they still believe it, but they assume it, then the third generation will usually outright deny it. You actually see this happen in the family of the guy who wrote Psalm 145. David, a man after God's own heart. Solomon, his son, didn't so much outright deny everything. He just kind of left it in the background and pursued a whole lot of other things. And then Rehoboam, Solomon's son, so godless and so wayward, so rebellious that God divided the kingdom under his watch. It goes from the high point of Israel's history. David, Solomon, the temple built, all the riches in the world, to Rehoboam, kingdom cut in half. God help us. It's rooted in covenant love. What we need to tell our kids, what we need to know ourselves. And verse 8 takes us back. Look at verse 8 of Psalm 145. Are these familiar words to you? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Anyone remember where that phrase, these words here, were first voiced? Where in the Bible? Just say it out loud. What book? Book of Exodus. Exodus 34, verse 6. God said these words first, and he said this is his name. His name is Yahweh, but he's got a full name, a long name, a very long name. It's even longer than this. This is sort of just his first and middle name. He says his name is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in chesed love, steadfast love, love in kindness, his covenant love. Oh my, is that one word so rich and so plentiful in the Bible? How much Psalm, uh, how rather, how much Exodus 34 gets repeated again and again, Old Testament and New? David here is pointing us back to those. Those years of Moses when God revealed himself and revealed his name and showed forth his promises in newer and deep and self-rooted ways. 
Our kids need to hear that. I mean, I get it all, but they need to hear it. They need to know the story of God's steadfast love in self-revealing ways. Our kids need to hear not just stories and promises and commands, but they also need to hear doctrine. That's why a catechism is a good thing. They may not understand all that they're memorizing, but maybe one day they will. Who knows? Maybe, maybe they memorize Psalm 1 and they don't understand it all at 5. And maybe they're riding their bike at 11 and they get, meditate on God's word. You're like a tree instead of like chaff. I gotta read my Bible. I mean, what if God lit that on fire in their hearts and lives apart from you, mom or dad, leading them and how to read their Bible? God does that kind of thing. We gotta put logs in the fire. We put Bible on the fire of their hearts and minds. We put catechism truth in their hearts and minds, praying that God would do something. Can't just be light and fluffy things, however true and good and needed those are. Not just the facts of the story, but the God behind the story. We have to tell our kids something of the mind blowing realities of the glorious splendor of His majesty. You're not going deep enough if your kids aren't scratching their heads saying, Wait a minute, what? What? It's okay. You say, I know, I don't get it either. Isn't it awesome? We're not just passing on information, we're passing on praise. That's really what verse 4 says. Right back at the beginning of this section. One generation shall commend, could be translated praise, shall praise your works to another. Not just commend, not just teach, not just offer, not just tell, but praise your works to another. That means our kids have to not just hear from us, but to see it in us. John Piper says, Parents and Sunday school teachers who do not exalt over God in their teaching will not bring about exaltation in God. Dry, unemotional, indifferent teaching about God, whether at home or at church, is a half-truth at best. It says one thing about God and portrays another thing. It's inconsistent. It says that God is great, but it teaches as if God is not great. These spiritual realities are caught, not just taught. God must do it, so we pray. But God uses not just information and not just church, not just Bibles. He uses expressions. He uses mom and dad's obvious and apparent physical, visible love for their God. And of course, this is true not just in generations, in the home, but it's true across the board in the church. We shouldn't think that Psalm 145 only applies to individuals and families and then eventually to the world, but it also implies what we call in the New Testament, one anothering, speaking truth to each other. Speak the truth in love, one to another. Like it says in Psalm 40, let all those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified, or great is the Lord. Let's say continually, those who know his greatness. That's why so many psalms have that horizontal feel. That's why we sing to each other, not just with each other. We sing to invite and to invoke and to stir up. 
We meet together in community groups and fellowship here and there in different relationships to stir up one another, to encourage each other to join in, to grow together in praise and the fight of sin. So we've used this phrase before about this kind of thing in the Psalms. We've talked about praise conversations, praising him to others, to our kids and beyond that to the whole congregation. Not just on Sunday morning as we sing, but as we shake hands after the service. I know most of us want to run to what is temporary, frivolous, and what we happen to share in common. Like love for football, or Lobos, or something. But let us fight to express our commonality in the thing that is eternal and supersedes all of that, the one sure thing that Jesus is Lord, and he deserves our praise. So how does this apply itself to you and for your home, your family? Maybe it means finally finding something that works in your home for family worship, having some kind of routine for Bible reading and prayer, perhaps singing, perhaps catechism, whatever, but finding something that works for you, and even if it starts small. Or maybe you're batting a thousand on family worship four years in a row now. And maybe Psalm 145 would encourage you to be slightly more organic so that maybe kids could see compulsion in you, not just discipline. Maybe it means starting a one-on-one Bible study with your teen, just looking for more opportunities to talk, to to open your Bible with them, for them to see mom and dad, look down, read, and come up with tears in his or her eyes. Maybe it means starting to let your kids at an appropriate age come into the worship service so they can see you go hard after God and they can see generations of people in our church go hard after God. If our kids only do classes on Sunday morning, They could do do classes all the way through to 18 and then wonder what this is all about. Uh, They need to see this. They need to see generational praise, not just in home, but here in the church. There's more I could say. We'll move on to this last point. The third thing is that God's praise is propagated universally. Internally, generationally, sort of a middle point there about it being propagated congregationally. But now we see this, that God's praise is propagated universally. The second half of this psalm is all about this. It's the biggest section, but in some ways, it's the most straightforward, so it won't take us nearly as long. Notice that verse 9 begins a transition here, because now now we have these alls starting. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. So from one angle, verse 9 is about generational commending of God and celebration of his ways. So one of the things we teach our kids is that God is good to all and his loving kindness is over all his works. But as this all comes in, now it gives us something more, something universal, something global of what God does and who this is for. So now look at verse 11 and 12 and you'll see where this ends up. God's people, it says, shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. 
and tell of your power to make known to the children of man. That means humanity. That's why we think this section is universal or global in the propagation of God's praise. God's people are to ponder all that he is and who he is, what he's done. They're to pass it on to their kids. They're to pass it on and encourage it with each other. But as they go through the world and as they go through life, they'll speak of it. They shall speak of his glory. They shall tell of his power. They shall make known to the sons of men who he is and what he's done. And then from there, the rest of the psalm, in a way, speaks both to Christians who will speak to the world and also to the world who will hear them. So maybe you're not a Christian. You say, where do I go? Is he really there? Verse 10 would tell you, look at his works. All your works will give thanks to you, O Lord. His works know that he's there. His works know that he exists. Remember Jesus saying, if the people didn't praise me, the rocks would cry out in praise. The stars sing at their creation, we're told in Job, however figurative that is. His works praise him. We should too. Maybe you're not a Christian, that doesn't sell you a bit. Listen to his saints, his people. His people bless him. His people bless him, and to you they speak, they tell, they make known. Oh, not as much as they should, not as much as I should. Christians are those who speak, who tell, who make known. Not as much as we should. And sometimes we get too aggressive in the wrong way. We do it in some sort of condescending way, and that's unhelpful too. This isn't telling you, non-Christian, that Christians always handle this thing of communicating God and his ways to the world very well. We often either chicken out or we're jerks. But it's in the Bible. Christians are those who talk. Christians are those who represent him in this world. We are to be his emissaries. We're to steward, take care of a message. It's not up to us to decide whether that's acceptable or culturally relevant today. And we think it's a loving thing when we do it best. It's a loving thing to tell you that he's there, that he hasn't been silent that he's revealed himself savingly in his son. How will they be saved, Romans 10 says, unless someone tells him? How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? Preaches to them about his universal kingdom. So verse 11 of Psalm 145 says, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom kingdom that there's a hidden reality going on behind the scenes we can't see it but it's there he's a king a global king and he's on his throne and he has his way and there's splendor in this kingdom even though we can't see it not just splendor glorious splendor it's an everlasting kingdom it's always been it always will be there's no threat to it all the kingdoms in this world put together are a drop in the bucket. He has a kingdom. He's a king. 
That sounds threatening, scary, and it should in part, but we should also find comfort in verse 14. Look around how this king operates in this kingdom, how he rules his world. Well, he helps the weak. The Lord upholds all who are falling. He raises up all who are bowed down. But what else? He gives food to all. Verse 15 says, The eyes of all look to you, even if they say they don't, and even if they think they got it all themselves. Regardless, you give them their food in due season. The sun rises on the just and the unjust. God is universally good and caring. And everything good and all things needed are like they came right from his hand. So it says, verse 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. He's righteous in all his ways. He's glorious and kind in all his works. You don't see it, but it's there. The fact that we don't see it is only an expression of our, our doubt, the suppression of truth, our faithlessness, our rebellion. Oh, I don't mean that God is visible, and so if you really put on God glasses, you can see him doing certain things in the sky. I don't mean that at all. I just mean for Christians who know that God is there and there's a realm where God reigns behind the scenes and he rules over everything. It doesn't take great faith to believe that that's happening. We did suppress it and ignore it and reinterpret reality all around us to fit a godless world at one time, but God has opened our eyes to see and the seeing in some ways is as real as seeing a rock or this pulpit. Because there are saving promises. And he has a reconciling plan. So verse 18 now gets more specific. This doesn't apply to everyone. A few verses before applied to everyone. Now it says he hears and he helps those who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. To those who need help and recognize their need and run to him rather than run from him, he hears them when they called on him in truth, when they fear him. Verse 19, when they fear him, holy, awe-filled, faith-filled fear, he fulfills their desire. He hears their cry. He saves them. Oh, not every stupid desire does he fulfill. He fulfills our desires better than we know. He answers our prayers better than we know to pray. The greatest prayer we can pray is to receive mercy. He fulfills that desire eagerly. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will receive him. None will I turn away. To all who call upon me in truth, it's as if he could say. And God, verse 20, also preserves all who love him. He preserves them. He keeps them. He sustains them spiritually and physically until he takes us home. And lest anyone be presumptuous about his benevolence and love and gentleness and care, in case you think that God is just a pushover, there's a warning at the end of verse 20. 
The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. That's in the Bible too. That God's a righteous God. That all of us are born wicked, rebellious, going astray, going against him, ignoring his praise, reinterpreting reality to make up our own God or pretend there isn't anyone there. All the wicked he will destroy. But think that doesn't end. Some, some psalms end on that sour note or sad note or heavy note. Here, David gives us a summary. Verse 21, that offers hope. A summary of the whole psalm. He goes all the way back to the beginning. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Starts with me. And then he fast forwards all the way to the end. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. What a contrast to the wicked that he will destroy. He says, instead, bless his name, turn to him, find mercy, call on him in truth, be saved, and then join with us in blessing his holy name forever and ever. Could it get any better than Psalm 145? I just have one more thing to ask us, one more section quickly to deal with. Could it get any more lofty than this? Remember, it's, the amp is up to 11. It's so big, it's so high and rich and gracious. It's so communal and familial. It's so inviting and welcoming. I mean, you do have a warning, but it's a half of a verse. The rest is just so sweet. Can it get any better than this? Indeed, it does. It does. Psalm 145 is a great psalm. It's a great song. It's one we should still sing. But there's more. God, through the prophet Isaiah, foretold of a day when God's people would sing a new song. A new song. Because God was going to do a new thing. So he says, Isaiah 42 Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth, to the sea, to the coastlands, and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, and sing for joy. And let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Global glory, global praise, and a new song to celebrate it. There are all kinds of psalms that hint about this global glory and global praise. But Psalm, sorry, Isaiah 42 here is doing something else. It's telling us about a day when this will change. Something's going to change The next verse of Isaiah 42 says, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He's coming. He's coming in might and glory. He's in zeal doing something glorious. We know what this means according to the New Testament. Jesus came. In God's zeal, he came. And he was victorious. Oh, it didn't look victorious in his birth, in his impoverished life, in his persecution, or on the cross. It didn't look victorious. 
but it was. In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And one day in heaven, there'll be a consummation of that new song that Isaiah 42 talked about. Revelation 5, verse 9, the last book of our Bibles, it says they sing a new song. Here it is. Worthy are you to take the scroll of God's plan and to open its seals to enact its promises. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed, you bought people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They sing the new song. And it will be better than Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is lofty. But the story has more details to it. As time went on, there's more information to know. Now, in light of Jesus, we can say, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, who call upon him in truth. He fulfills their desires. That's why Jesus came. He hears their cry and he saves them. That's what Christmas is all about. He preserves them. He put within us his love and his praise that we would bless his holy name forever and ever. May it be so.